scripture passage this morning comes from the end of the gospel according to Luke chapter 24. We're going to be reading verses 36 through 49. Before we turn to the Lord's word, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Uh, We need the Holy Spirit who first breathed out this God's word to illuminate for us that we might rightly understand it and apply it to our lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, creator of the seen and unseen, at the beginning of time you created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them through the power of your spirit. So send to us now your spirit who moved over the face of the waters to move within our hearts and minds that they might be open to receive the recreating power of your word. Through Jesus Christ we ask these things. Amen. Luke chapter 24, verses 36 through 49. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them, that is the disciples, and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that Repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine according to to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. A verse that is often associated with Easter is Psalm 30, verse 5. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. It is an appropriate verse for Easter. We think of the tomb being found empty at the dawn of that Easter morning and the hope and the joy that comes from the reality of Jesus' resurrection. And as we said last Sunday, it was the dawn of a new day, the dawn of a new era in which death has been swallowed up in victory over the grave. Luke's gospel, however, reveals to us that this Easter joy was not experienced 
by all of Jesus' disciples on that Easter morning. In fact, Luke 24 makes it very apparent that as the evening falls on that first Easter, the majority of the disciples are still in disbelief. Not only disbelief that their friend had been killed, but also in disbelief that he had, in fact, risen from the grave. There was no joy, only continued grief and fear and despair. And it isn't that they hadn't heard the news. Going back to that morning, the women who found the empty tomb did as they were instructed to do, and they went and they told the disciples. And two of them, Peter and John, upon hearing the news, immediately went to see the empty tomb for themselves. And Luke tells us that Peter, at least, went home marveling over what he had seen there. Not only an empty tomb, but also the linen cloths that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus had wrapped around Jesus' body. These cloths were found lying there in the tomb. But we also need to understand how these cloths were found there. John, who was there with Peter, tells us in his gospel that the cloth that had been around Jesus' head was lying separate and, as our English Bible says, was folded up. But it wasn't folded as we think of the word. It wasn't folded like we might do to a towel as we pull it out of our dryer. The Greek word literally means rolled up. Rolled up. Like what one does to a cloth that is made into a tunic. This should catch our attention because as we often think that the cloth around Jesus's head was wrapped around his whole head, including his face, this wasn't actually how they usually wrapped cloth around the head. It was actually wrapped around the head, like we might see on somebody's head, a, a turban. So What John is telling us is that he found the headcloth still in that shape. And the fact that it was separate from the rest of the linen cloths tells us that all of the cloths were just as they had been, as though they were still wrapped around the body and around the head, but the body had vanished. So we need to understand that Jesus did not simply stand up in the tomb and unwrap himself, leaving the claws lying there. Rather, he was raised, and he was raised in what the Apostle Paul calls the spiritual body. That doesn't mean that the body isn't physical. Paul is contrasting the natural body, the earthly body, the perishable body from the heavenly body the imperishable body, the resurrection body. In other words, Jesus' dead body was not simply revived. He rose in an altogether different body, which shared similarities, as we will see, to his mortal body, but also had differences. And I go into all of this detail because it's important to understand what John and Peter saw and the significance of it. Now, it would not make much sense for someone to steal the body 
unwrap it and then spend time making sure that the grave claws were all perfectly arranged as though the body had simply passed through them? Of course not. So as we consider what they saw, we also need to consider what they would have returned to share with the other disciples. But these disciples had already heard from the women. It was a story that the disciples found unbelievable. This is what Luke tells us. He tells us that the women's story, quote, seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. So the disciples had heard from the women, They have no doubt heard from Peter and John as well, who had found these grave claws there untouched, just without a body present. Very puzzling indeed. But then in verse 36, we find them also talking to the two followers of Jesus who had encountered a stranger while they walked and talked together on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus. They had been discussing Jesus' death when this stranger met them, and this stranger ended up speaking to them about Jesus. And as Luke puts it, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, the stranger, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning Jesus. Of course, we know that this stranger was Jesus. And the travelers finally have their eyes open to who he is when he takes bread, blesses it, breaks it, and gives it to them. So the disciples had heard from the women, they had heard from Peter and John, and they had heard from the two Emmaus Road travelers who had rushed back to Jerusalem to tell the disciples that they had just seen and spoken to the risen Jesus. And despite all of this, when Jesus appeared among them in the room where they were all gathered on that Sunday evening, the disciples were unable to make sense out of what they were seeing. And they couldn't make sense out of it because they simply didn't believe that they could be looking at the risen Jesus. It made more sense to them that they were seeing a ghost than it did to them that they were looking at the risen Lord Jesus. This is what Luke tells us in verse 37. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. They were quite literally in disbelief. And maybe this is shocking to us. After all, really, how could they be this dense? How many times and in how many different ways had Jesus told them that he was going to be killed and on the third day rise from the dead? Even even the religious leaders who had him crucified had remembered that he had said this. This is why they took the extra measure to be sure that the tomb was sealed and guarded. So it would make sense for any reader of Scripture to to see the disciples in a disparaging light here. But I I hope we can see in this passage the good news of the disciples' unbelief. And I realize that this probably sounds strange to our ears the good news of the disciples' unbelief. So hear me out. 
I want to share two reasons why their unbelief is actually good news for us. And then I want to share a few lessons we learn from their unbelief. So the first reason why their unbelief is good news for us. What is the really simple message about the disciples' unbelief? And we could say that it tells us that they were really quite slow, slow to understand, slow to believe. Their doubt here might seem to us at first glance to be quite senseless, unreasonable. But I think the reality was that they were still in a state of shock and they didn't trust their senses. They didn't trust their senses. Certainly, they would have hoped that the news that they had received from the women and Peter and John and these two Emmaus Road travelers was true. But it seemed too good to be true. What if, what if they had all just seen what they had wanted to see, a risen Jesus? What if they had imagined that they had seen Jesus because this is precisely what they wanted to see? We do this sometimes, don't we? We want something to be true so badly that we make ourselves believe things that aren't really true. Here's a silly illustration. Since it's this time of year, sometimes when I'm standing in the turkey woods, I can hear that bird gobbling from away, a ways away. I can believe that I can hear it. And it makes me feel better to think that something is really there. And if I go after this gobbler, though, the only result is that I find myself tired and sweaty a mile in standing in the middle of a quiet woods. We do this, don't we? But the testimony of Scripture here is that the disciples didn't do this. They were actually seeing Jesus, and they didn't trust what they were looking at. And this is very important because the witness of the disciples becomes extraordinarily significant in the propagation of the church. Their task was to give witness to the resurrected Jesus. This is what Jesus tells them in verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. They were to go out and share what they had seen and experienced. It's important then that their witness is reliable, right? If the resurrection of Jesus is to be believed, then the witness of the disciples will be central. And they were proven reliable witnesses because they would not easily be fooled here. The fact is that they would not be easily convinced, which means they were not in any way gullible. Quite the opposite. They were shown to be very skeptical and said, isn't the best witness the one who has been very skeptical at first and who was brought out of that skepticism and made a believer this is the case with the disciples here in Luke 24 what scripture shows us is that they were convinced in spite of themselves 
So this is good news for us. What it tells us is that any questions, any doubts that we might have about the resurrection, the disciples had them first. And this means that the witness delivered from the disciples is trustworthy because the resurrection wasn't simply believed at face value. Rather, it was intensely scrutinized and verified by them. Their testimony is not merely of ones who were hoping beyond all hope that they had seen something that they longed to see. They aren't out chasing imaginary birds through the woods. At the end of the day, the resurrection of Jesus was a truth that they had been so convinced of that they would not recant their testimony of it even under severe persecution and death. This should produce in us confidence. They doubted in order that we don't have to. But their doubt is also good news for us because it reveals to us something about the graciousness of our Lord Jesus. Jesus appeared to these skeptical disciples, and this is the first word he spoke to them. Peace to you. There were times when Jesus chastised his followers for being of little faith and slow to believe, but Jesus, in his perfect wisdom, would not break a bruised reed, would not quench a smoldering wick. The events of the last three days had been traumatizing for his disciples, and we see just how patient and gentle and gracious Jesus was to them in their unbelief at this moment. Jesus was willing to meet them exactly where they were. So we see him here inviting them not only to see him, but to, to touch him as well. He shows them his, his hands and his feet, which bear the wounds of the crucifixion. And then knowing how to convince them that he is not merely a ghost, he asks them for food, and he eats it in front of them. As a great J.C. Ryle notes, our Lord might fairly have commanded his disciples to believe that he had risen, he might justly have said, where is your faith? Why do you not believe my resurrection when you see me with your own eyes? But he does not do so. He stoops even lower than this. He appeals to the bodily senses of the disciples. What what wonderful news this is for us that we have a Savior who stoops. Who has, we have a Savior who stoops, who's willing to meet us in our weakness. And it's especially wonderful news as we navigate our lives in which we inevitably meet hardship and suffering. And it's during these moments that we can be shaken to the core and tempted to doubt. But Scripture invites us here to recognize that we have a Savior in Jesus Christ who is gracious to meet us where we are, to restore in us confidence and assurance. Jesus wants us to experience the peace that is given as a result of the crucifixion and resurrection. And by the way, this is the very same Jesus who tells his followers that he will not lose any of those that the Father has given him. He will not lose us to doubt or unbelief if we have truly placed faith in him by God's grace. But in the midst of this good news for us, there are a few lessons for us as well. 
And the first of these has to do with these moments that we face suffering and are tempted to doubt. Notice here that after Jesus speaks peace to the disciples, he asks them these questions. Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? We should always pay attention to the questions that Jesus asks. He always asks very piercing questions. And these are piercing questions which identify not only that the disciples are troubled, they also identify the source of their trouble. Now, we could reasonably assume that they're troubled because they believe that they were speaking to a ghost. This would be quite disturbing to be seeing some sort of apparition. They could also be troubled because of what had happened the past few days, troubled because their friend Their leader, Jesus, had been arrested, tried, beaten, and crucified. This was a man that they thought was the Messiah. All their hopes and dreams had been shattered. And traumatic experiences certainly have a way of troubling us, of causing us grief and sorrow. But this isn't what Jesus was referencing here. Jesus was linking here their trouble with their doubt. Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt? These are the two questions. And here's what Jesus is pointing out. Their doubt was producing in them trouble. Their doubt was preventing them from experiencing the peace that Jesus brings, the peace which is secured by his resurrection. Almost certainly they are dealing with the sorrow of what had occurred to their friend, but this sorrow is being compounded by their doubt. And this is what doubt does to us. It brings further trouble to our hearts. It keeps us from experiencing God's peace sometimes at the moment that we need it the most. In that moment of grief, sometimes rather than resting in the promises of God, we're tempted to question instead, does God really care about me? Does he really love me? If so, why is this happening to me? Is God really even there? Dearly beloved, what sustains us through times of sorrow or hardship is our faith. What sustains us is the confidence that God is loving and wise and sovereign, that he is working out all things according to his purposes for our ultimate good and for his ultimate glory. What sustains us is the confidence that these times of suffering are but a light momentary affliction that are working for us the eternal weight of glory. The issue is that the same moments in which we need that confidence are the exact times in which we are tempted to doubt, which only serves to shake our confidence, puts us on unsteady ground. So what are we to do? Well, we have already said that Jesus desires to to meet us in those moments, but we need to ask the question, how? does he desire to meet us? And this is where this passage is immensely helpful and instructive for us. Look at what happens here. And really, this passage is a continuation of the preceding passage about the travelers on the road to Emmaus. The curious thing is that we often tend to think that seeing is believing, right? That seeing is believing. 
And if you are anything like me, then there have been moments in your faith journey that you have longed to see some sort of sign, maybe even longed to see Jesus himself appear to you, maybe in a, in a vision or a dream. There's a sense that if only I could see, my faith would be strengthened. I would have the assurance that I need. And this might be all the more true when we're facing a moment of trial. But we have two stories here in a row in which Jesus does present himself in a physical form, and yet, and yet, doubt remains. Here we have Jesus standing before these individuals, and it isn't enough for them to believe. Seeing isn't enough. Isn't that interesting? Is this coincidence? Of course not. There's a very clear lesson to us here that our faith is established and strengthened, not in signs and wonders, but through the word of God. The travelers on the road to Emmaus said afterwards, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And when the bread is taken, blessed, broken, and given, this is the same rhythm that occurs in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Their eyes were opened, and they finally recognized Jesus, who had been with them all along. The word spoken. The word enacted. This is what vanquished their doubts. And here in our verses this morning, it really wasn't until Jesus shared with them how everything written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets in the Psalms must be fulfilled that we are told that their minds were opened. They were open to see Jesus for who he is. They were open to understand the scriptures. This is their aha moment. It was the moment when their doubts began to be vanquished. And it happened again through the word of God proclaimed. Question number 65, the Heidelberg Catechism asks this question. It is through faith alone that we share in Christ and all his benefits. Where does that faith come from? Here's the answer. The Holy Spirit produces it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel. The proclamation of the word of God and confirms it by the use of the holy sacraments. It is through God's word read, proclaimed, and acted that faith in us is established and strengthened. Romans 10 verse 17 states, faith comes from hearing in hearing through the word of God. This is how God has ordained for faith to come about in our lives and to be sustained. It's through his word. We've seen this in our sermon series through Acts, haven't we? As the church of Jesus Christ grew, his faith spread outward from Jerusalem, outward from the Jewish people to the Gentile people, as more and more were added to the family of God. It happened through the proclamation of the gospel, especially through the explanation of Jesus in light of the Old Testament. And granted, there were some signs and wonders, but more often than not, there was simply the preaching of the word of God, revealing how Jesus Christ had fulfilled the law and the prophets and the Psalms. 
we see the apostles preaching. And their preaching is filled with Old Testament references. And when there were signs and wonders, these were never without the proclamation of the gospel, but were used as a means to confirm what was being proclaimed. So where do we go in times of doubt? We turn to God's word. We find our assurance there for it is there that the Lord Jesus meets us and speaks his peace to us. And if we are not regularly in God's word, then chances are we will be prone to deal with doubt. Charles Spurgeon said this, I usually find that the greatest doubters are the people, surprise, surprise, who do not read the Bible. I believe that we will find this to be true in our own lives. But this passage does not just encourage us toward God's word for vanquishing of doubt. It encourages us to God's word in order that we would have a biblical theology, one that understands who Jesus is through the lens of the Old Testament. And we need to understand how Scripture tells one story. It's the story of God's love for us, the story of how God works out his redemptive purposes for his fallen creation. Well, we've been doing this in our adult Sunday school class. We've been finding the truth of that motto that the old covenant is in the new revealed and the old covenant is in the old concealed. The Old Testament is a shadow of the things to come which find all of their substance in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. As J.C. Ryle encourages, let it be a settled principle in our minds in the reading the Bible that Christ is the central son of the whole book. We need a biblical theology that understands these things. If we are to truly understand who Jesus Christ is for us, then we need a firm understanding of the Old Testament. And there are today far too many Christians who dismiss the Old Testament as unimportant, irrelevant, outdated, and because of this have a very diminished view of who Jesus Christ is. Dearly beloved, a diminished view of Jesus will not serve you well when you are tempted to doubt. We also see here in this passage the need to understand the importance of the Word of God over and above experience. This is another aspect of modern Western Christianity that gets elevated. It is one of the supreme uh, places of value in our culture, experience. Granted, it isn't that experience is unimportant. We would never say that it was unimportant that Jesus here is showing himself to the disciples, letting them touch his hands and his feet. This isn't unimportant. They will serve as witnesses of the resurrection. And it's also not unimportant because faith is not merely ascribing to a set of propositions. Just because you believe that the resurrection was a historical event does not necessarily mean you have placed saving faith in Jesus. We do actually have to encounter the Lord Jesus in the power of his spirit. We do actually have to experience his grace in a way that changes us, regenerates us, and causes us to put our trust in him. And by the way, true faith will produce a change in the way that we live. True faith will encourage 
obedience and spur us to give witness to the new life that we have been given through the power of the resurrection. After encountering Jesus and placing faith in him, we don't simply go back to life as we knew it, just waiting to die or for him to return in order that we might gain eternal life. No, we have eternal life right now. We must live like it. But there are many who are simply looking for some sort of religious experience without spending any sort of time in God's word. They're unconcerned with having any sort of biblical theology. They just want an experience. But Luke is clearly showing us that experience is to be subservient to the word of God. Faith comes through the word of God. This is where we encounter the risen Lord Jesus. And all experience is to be tested by Scripture. Jesus, in encountering the disciples, points them back to the Word of God to affirm what they are seeing in experience, that it is, in fact, in accordance with God's Word. It validates the experience. Here's another reality that's made plainly obvious in this passage. Faith in Jesus Christ requires God to open our eyes, enlighten our minds to the truth of the gospel. The gospel writers are not shy to show us that there are those who are confronted with the reality of the risen Lord Jesus and yet don't believe. It isn't just the Pharisees and scribes and Roman officials. It's also Jesus' own followers who aren't able to believe until they are enabled to believe. Even when they see him, they can't see him for who he is. And it isn't that Jesus looked different. That's not it at all. It was that their minds were darkened. Their eyes were blinded. Until Jesus, by his grace, enables them to see and understand and believe. By the way, this should be an encouragement to us. As we give witness to our faith, as we share the good news of the gospel, to be patient and gracious with those who are skeptical and doubt what we share. We should remember, even Jesus' own disciples were skeptical of the resurrection. Their skepticism was overcome by God's grace, though. And notice who Jesus sends them to give witness to. To all the nations, but beginning in Jerusalem. The very ones who crucified Jesus. It reveals to us the graciousness of our Lord, his patience, his desire to forgive sinners, to bring them to himself, his power to overcome even the deepest doubts and the stoutest of skeptics. And dearly beloved, it is his power to overcome doubt. It's the reason why you are here today and I am here today. And so as we go, We must rest in his grace, in his grace, in his patience, and in his power. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, vanquish in us any doubt. Bring assurance to our hearts, confidence in the gospel message. Strengthen our faith. Speak your peace to us that we might go forth and proclaim your love, your forgiveness of sins among the nations. And we might seek repentance 
And grant that we might be used in this way for the increase of your kingdom. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ and for his sake that we pray these things. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and proclaim what we believe using the Philippian Creed. Believer, in whom do you believe? We believe in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. 